Um, we're going into the book of Job. Who's excited? Haha, <laughs> you haven't read the book of Job. Um, no, we are. We're going to the book of Job, and seriously, one of my main goals is that we will enjoy the book of Job, and it's a great challenge. It's a great challenge, but if you want to turn to Job chapter 3, that's where we're going to be, um, and uh, yeah, I've been, I've been excited. I've been, haven't been preaching, you know, last few weeks, kind of got a team deal going on, and it's been really good with Ryan and Alec preaching the, the first two messages. Ryan um, basically introduced us to the main characters of Job, um, and, uh, and took us right into, you know, obviously Job uh, as a main character. And I'm going to kind of do a little review just, just for framework because Job is a lot. It's, a, it's like a big, chunky beef stew, and you just like chew on it, and chew on it, and chew on it, try and get some stuff. So we'll pop up the slide up. But this is Job. Job was a man not of Jewish ascent, but somehow seemed to be familiar with Jewish history. You can go down that rabbit hole for a long way, try and figure out who Job is and when this was written. Job was blameless, not without sin, but in right standing with God. That idea of Job being blameless, again, rabbit hole for days. It's so interesting. Um, Job took his relationship with the Lord very seriously. He made offerings for himself, but he also made offerings for his children just in case they might have done something wrong. Some serious helicopter parenting. Job was a man of great wealth and honor and family. And then in one day, Job chapter 1, he loses all his wealth, family, and honor. And then in Job chapter 2, he loses his health as well. So this is Job. In one corner, we have Job. And then all of a sudden, in this kind of like interesting scene, we get introduced to someone in the other corner. It's kind of like a boxing match or something, or a wrestling match, where all of a sudden we have Job in this corner, and then we have this introduction to this guy named Hasatan. And it's very specific here that the, the name in the Hebrew is not a proper name. It's not Satan, as we later on through biblical understanding have a kind of more developed understanding of who Satan is. But this is a this is really ancient text, and what it just calls Satan is Hasatan. And all that means is the adversary. So we have Job in one corner. Ding ding. Let's get ready to rumble. And introducing in the other corner. Hasatan, and he's the adversary. And this is interesting. So he's the adversary, but we don't know who he's the adversary of. He's just some sort of created angelic being that is dubbed the adversary. Is he the adversary of God? No, we know that's not true. He's a created angelic being. So it's not like him and God are kind of duking out. He's just someone that is at the Lord's service. And he comes and reports to God what he's been doing and he can only do what God allows him to do. So is his adversary Job or his adversary mankind? Is, his is he the adversary of, of, of true faith? These are all interesting questions that I will not be answering for you. But you can go down those rabbit holes. He is roaming the world. I don't know what's going on there. He's roaming the world, and then he comes and reports. And we know in the New Testament that Satan roams the world looking for who he may devour. So we got a little bit of insight into that. Hasatan thinks Job is only interested in God for the material possessions God has given him, the blessing. Hasatan wants to ruin Job's relationship with God. Hasatan was given permission and power to hurt Job by God. 
But he was only allowed to hurt him to a certain degree. In one sense, you're like, that's messed up, man. But then you're like, oh, I guess that's a little better. He can only hurt me to a degree. It's deep stuff. So this is, the ma- this is the wrestling match, and the wrestling match begins. But somehow, God is involved in the wrestling match as well. He's like present, but he's also like overseeing and officiating and all these things. But he's there in the mix too. And God, we know, is in control of the world. And the question that Job asks us is, is God doing a good job? Is this a well-run world? And the first answer that as Christians we see, and in chapter 1 we see, yeah, look how awesome it is. Job is a good guy. Job is blessed. God's running the world well. Then we go through all these chapters where all of a sudden the answer to that question has to be, hell no. Pardon my, it's not French, whatever it is. Because hell literally breaks into Job's life. Literally, Hasatan is unleashing his power to destroy Job, or at least to try and destroy his faith. And so if you ask Job in the middle of the book of Job, do you live in a well-run world? Job's like, I don't think so, man. But then when the Lord comes in the whirlwind and all this is resolved in the end, sort of resolved, the narrator basically asks you again, do we live in a well-run world? And now with all of that angst, with all of that grief, with all of that pain, with all of that turmoil, the biblical writer says, yes, we live in a well-run world, but there are a lot of gaps in our understanding. And all we're left to do is trust that there are no gaps in God's understanding or goodness. You ready to swim in some deep waters? These are deep, deep waters. Then Alec took us into last week. He introduced us to three other characters, the friends of Job, Zophar, Eliphaz, and Bildad. And these guys come on the scene, and they're called friends in the Bible, and they show up when Job's in in pain and in need, and they're quiet with them. They just kind of sit in that space, you know, like husbands you don't know how to do. Like your wife's like, I'm really hurting on this. You're like, I'll fix that. They're like, I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen. Oh, I'll fix that too. Let's just fix it. Let's just make it stop. And the friends do. They sit with him. They just kind of sit with him. They lament with him. They give him that space. And they do good for a little while. And then Job in chapter 3, which we're going to read today, is basically telling everybody how he feels. And immediately we start this cyclical kind of Um, advice giving from Job's friends. All right, Job, we've listened to you. We've sat with you. We've heard you moaning and groaning. Now we're going to fix it. And they begin to kind of share with him in what Alec called these half theologies, these partial truths. And they're trying to help Job understand how to get out of the pain, how to fix things, how to get better. And they keep coming up with these things. And basically, they're summed up in three ways. Job, it's because of your sin. God is punishing you. Just stop sinning or repent, and bam, everything's good. The second thing that they say is that, Job, this is just one of those pruning times that the Lord's doing because really he's wanting you to grow. You just have some rough edges, and God's breaking those things off now. You should be happy. You should love this. Or then the last one, that just kind of natural consequences. 
Like we just live in a challenging world and you're not going through anything worse than anybody else and this is not the Lord doing it. It's just a kind of hard part of life. It's a hard season. And so if you look in Eliphaz, so chapter 3, Job kind of shares how he feels, which we're going to dive into, and then Eliphaz's response, I'll just grab a few verses from him in chapter 4 and 5. It says, chapter, uh, Job 4, 8, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So this is basically, he's saying to Job, your sin is causing you your pain. That's his, his perspective, his worldview. Job 5.3, I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. Job, it's because you did foolishness that this is happening to you. Job 5.7, yet a man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Job, it's just part of the natural causes of living in a fallen world. You're not suffering worse than anybody else. It's just part of the deal. Job 5, 8, 9, but if I were you, Job, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. That sounds good, right? And that's true sometimes. That if we cry out to the Lord in our pain, sometimes healing shows up in some miraculous way. It's awesome. And sometimes when we cry out to the Lord or we repent, things do change. We get to see the favor of the Lord in some neat way. But then there's a lot of other times where you cry out to the Lord and it sounds a lot like this. Maybe not an air conditioner on at that time, I don't know. It's summertime, wintertime, wherever you're from, I don't know. But that silence can go on for days, for weeks. For months, for years, for some people it's been decades on that pain that the Lord just will not give you relief from. Job 5.17, blessed is the one who God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, the discipline of the Lord like we talked about. Job 5.27, we have examined this, and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. Basically, he's saying, Job, we're right, you're wrong, fix it. Just get right with God, and everything will be better. Stop being in denial. And yet, what Job continues to respond to his friends as they continue to bring up these different perspectives is this is not because I'm wrong with God. This is not because I've done something wrong. God changed the game on me. And he doesn't know about chapter 1 and chapter 2 where we get to see that this is some sort of cosmic, supernatural, bizarre thing happening. But he at least knows who God is enough to say this is not the way it was. And what you're bringing to me is not really what's happening. And we as the readers, we get you know, insight into all of these things. But that's where Job is left. The problem with Job's friend's perspective is their understanding of God and the world did not have a fourth possibility. They did not let evidence ruin their really good theories. <laughs> that's a joke. It's awesome. The whole book of Job is telling us that there is a fourth possibility as to why we have pain. The fourth possibility is this. You read it? This is not going to make you feel better, but it's true. But sometimes God allows or ordains pain to help us know more about who he is so we can deepen our relationship with him. Sometimes he's just up to something that we have no idea what's happening. 
Job's pain was not a result of punishment. It was not a result of discipline. It was not just natural consequences, original sin. It was undeserved suffering. And yet what Job said when the undeserved suffering hit was a really, really deep gospel truth. Shall I receive undeserved grace from the Lord and not be willing to receive undeserved suffering? Somehow Job was beginning to understand that if I'm not willing to receive undeserved suffering, what right do I have to undeserved grace? If it's all about what I earn, I'm lost from the day the game begins. That this was some cosmic, spiritual, supernatural courtroom drama. I tried to do the Law and Order soundtrack. I just, I would, I literally did Lowrider. I was like, do, 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 do. and I was trying to do whatever the Law and Order is, which I can't think. Of. All I am is Lowrider now. Anyways, sorry about that. Um, some courtroom drama in the heavenly realm, which brought about Job's suffering. The result was Job grew in his knowledge and understanding of God, and therefore his relationship with God. And the book of Job really is trying to help us understand this fourth possibility. And a better example of this is Jesus. Jesus' pain was not for punishment. He never sinned. Jesus' pain was not to make him grow. He's the incarnate God. Jesus' pain was not natural consequences. Jesus' pain was ordained by God the Father, undeserved, to show that God is deadly serious about sin and deadly serious about forgiveness and cleansing and resurrection. He is a God who will always do justice, but at the same time, he will show how mercy triumphs over justice. Another way to put it, has anybody watched the Warriors win at all last week? Yeah? Yeah? You shouldn't have been watching them if you're a Suns fan. Come on, people. I'm just kidding. I watched it too. Um, yeah, and so the Warriors won the whole championship, and then Steph Curry got the MVP, right? And in, 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 and in basically the world perspective of the Bible, in particular book of Job, Justice is going to win the championship. God is going to bring about and execute perfect justice in the end. But he's going to make sure everyone knows that mercy gets the MVP. The truth is, is, is we all want justice and it's right to wrong justice and it hurts when you do not get justice. But none of us will ever come close to any kind of justice in what we do or in what's happening to us if we do not become champions of mercy. Mercy is the only way to see justice in our world. Forgiveness is the only way to really find justice and freedom. And Jesus demonstrated on that, that on the cross. Because there in the greatest act of justice, the greatest act of injustice also is the greatest act of mercy and the greatest release of grace all in what Jesus did on the cross. And Job is a foreshadowing of that in many ways. So this is what basically we've got at this point. This is the framework. This is some of the, the kind of themes that are coming out. And now let's hear from Job, which we're going to do this week. We're going to hear what Job feels. 90% of what Job writes in the next kind of, I think it's 30 chapters, all of the things he says, 90% of it is basically what he feels. And this is a sad story. <laughs> And then 10% of it is what he wants, and we're going to talk about that next week. So Job chapter 3, verse 1. You ready for some poetry? Ready for some ancient, super depressing lament poetry? Huh? Yeah. Woo! 
Just remember it rained yesterday. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God not even care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. I love that phrase right there. He's like, where are the day cursers? I need, let's get all the day cursers we can find in here and let them just curse that day. We need to just take all of that cursing and just start pointing at that day. And then it gets weirder. And those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, which maybe we'll get into that later. Maybe not. Have fun with that. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and do not see the rays of dawn. May it, for it did not shut the doors of the womb on me and hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the room? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They, are no longer, uh, they no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. He's thinking about death and how wonderful it sounds. Why is light given to the misery, given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than the hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. This is what Job feels. And Job, the Bible, continuously refrains that there is nothing sinful in anything Job says. He's telling the truth. He's lamenting. He's grieving. He's pouring out his disappointment, his frustration, and his pain. He wishes he would never have been born. And there's maybe been times in your life where you've been there. Not only that, but five times he shouts out, why? Why this? Why this? Why this? Why this? And if you've been in pain or you've experienced loss, you know that there's a lot of why questions that come. Why this? Why that? He talks about sighing becoming his daily food. And I've been with people who are grieving intensely and, and the moans and the groans is basically all that can come out. I had a situation where I was kind of in the same boat, um, not with emotional pain, but physical pain. I was in South Africa and uh, I was in this big jungle river. And there were like monkeys kind of in the trees on the side and we were fishing me and some friends, and, and, uh, and we weren't, weren't catching fish, but then all of a sudden I caught one. And I was like, 
little bit of suckers. You know, like I was so proud of this. Like I caught this jungle African fish and it was going to be the greatest thing in the world. And I got it to the boat and pulled it up and I was like, what's up? And they were like, oh, that's cool. And then I, I went to grab the fish and it stung me. I still have a hole. You can't see it, but I can see it. It's there, okay? Um, right in there. And, uh, and it, the pain was so intense. And like my whole arm swelled up to my elbow and stayed swelled up for like two weeks or something. Um, it was intense. But um, I remember partially because of the pain and also partially because I had no idea what just happened and I was in an African jungle place and uh, we were a long way from any kind of help and I didn't know. I, I remember I was just like, all I could do, the pain was so intense, we were just driving. And I was with like my brothers and some, some of my friends so I was trying to act tough. But literally, I was just like, like, that's all I could do for like an hour was just kind of like, the pain would hit and I could just like groan. I was like flexing all my muscles, just trying to like, just not get hurt anymore. And, uh, and so when I read that phrase, it was like I immediately went to that place and I remembered. And Job, remember, he wasn't just going through some sort of spiritual, emotional thing, but his physical pain was intense as well. He was sitting in ashes and he was scraping the boils on his skin that had covered his body. He was in intense, tense pain. Not only that, but he says in the end that he had no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. And I've been walking with a few friends of mine right now. One of them has gone through some pretty challenging stuff and, and he's kind of, for whatever reason, felt like he's not able to cope anymore and he's actually been cutting himself and and really just kind of grieving, and, and he's in, a, in kind of a scared place. Another friend of mine, he's, he's been going through a similar type thing where he feels like mentally his, his mind is kind of slipping, like he's losing what he used to be able to kind of pull back together. And, and often at times it happens right before he goes to sleep. It's like he, he, he goes to sleep, and then this, these dark, dark thoughts come. And he, he gets so freaked out and so nervous that then he can't sleep. And now he's at the place where it's gone on long enough to where he's too scared to even try and go to sleep because the dark thoughts come. And so now he's like staying up later and sleeping less and less. And then that creates a whole nother problem because he's not getting sleep. And he's just had to check himself into a hospital. And he's going through this really, really dark night of the soul. And it's exactly what he's saying. He has no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. And this is what Job feels. And yet, in all of this, Job chapter 6, we get this conclusion that Job is basically saying, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. What do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. But now be so kind as to look to me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? He's saying to his friends and basically saying to God, he's like, you know this is not because of me. But everything has changed, and he can't figure out why. And sometimes that's the hardest part of the pain when it's confusing pain. And so there's a few questions that the book of Job wants us to ask. And there's very few answers that the book of Job gives us. But some of those questions is, what do you do when you're in pain? And more specifically, in a kind of pain when all the obvious things aren't helping. 
What do you do when you're in pain that doesn't seem like it's from sin or discipline or consequence? What do you do when it seems like the pain is undeserved suffering? What do you do, and this is the big one, please hear this. What do you do when it feels like the God that used to be your friend and father now feels a lot like a boss or a slave master or maybe even worse, he feels like an enemy? Remember when David prayed in Psalm 23, Lord, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Job is basically in his words saying, God, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death and I can't find you. You used to be right here and now you're nowhere to be found. And then David goes on in that chapter to say, your rod and staff, they comfort me. And what Job is saying, God, your rod and staff seem like they're the things that are causing me the most pain. In one phrase, Job talks about how it feels like God's just got his arrows out and he's just shooting Job. And that's a really hard place to be when your father and friend now feels like he's gone or maybe he's even the enemy. And that's where Job was at. And some of you maybe have been hurt in what you thought would be things that God was doing or places that God was. And your only hope, your only savior actually feels like an enemy. So what does Job teach us to do in the pain, especially that confusing pain? And I'm going to say something here, and some of you will hear it and basically be like, it's too shallow. It's not going to work. And I, and I get that, but just bear with me. So what does Job teach us to do in the pain? It teaches us to trust, to trust God. And I get that's way too simple of an answer. But that's really the answer of Job. You've got to trust that there's gaps in your understanding, but there's no gaps in his understanding. There's gaps in your goodness, but there's no gaps in his goodness. You just can't see it all. Job actually says in one of his phrases, in one of his moments, deep, deep in the sorrow, he says, though you slay me, God, yet I will trust you. Even if you came, God, and you literally, I watched you slay me, I would trust that somehow you know that's the best thing for me and the ones I love. And that's a really, really interesting place to be. Though you slay me, yet I will trust you. In Micah chapter 7, there's a prophet, and he's basically, Micah chapter 7, verse 1, is what misery is mine. That's how it starts out. And he's just talking about how miserable he is and the people of Israel at this point. And yes, he says that he knows that they have sinned and all of these things, but he also knows that God is someone who can actually forgive sin and restore and redeem. And so he's kind of wrestling this out in his own poetic way. And then he comes to this point and he says, basically, I will be patient as the Lord does his thing. As the Lord hurts me, wounds me, as the Lord does whatever he wants to do, I will be patient as the Lord does this. Because after that, he'll take my cause and he'll bring me to light and to justice for all I have suffered. Because it talks about God's hands being skilled in mercy. God's hands being skilled in justice. 
that if this person can just be patient, can just hold on to Jesus' hand a little longer, he's eventually going to get to see. He's going to get to see. So what is the activity of trust? So trust is this word like, start trusting right now. Someone come up here and show me trust. Like, what, like, what, are, you, what are you talking about, trust? It's just kind of this ambiguous word. So I tried to really dial in. It's like, what's the activity of trust? What does trust look like? And this is what I came up with, and you could probably come up with some more things, but, but I went first to that story where Moses and the Israelites are on the edge of that Red Sea, and they're hedged in by all these cliffs, and Pharaoh's army's coming to him, and God says something to him. He says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And so what is the activity of trust? I think stillness is a huge part of the activity of trust. And what does stillness mean? Stillness means you don't run away. You don't quit. Stillness means you don't grab onto other things. Stillness might mean that you be careful with how you numb the pain. Stillness means you stay there. You stand still. You, 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 you wait on the Lord. You keep yourself on your knees, facing him. It's like Daniel. He continued to pray towards Jerusalem when he was in exile. I think there's a stillness. There's a, okay, Lord, I'm going to stay right here. Everything in me is telling me you can't be trusted and I need to go do it on my own. But instead, I'm just going to stay. And maybe I won't be as loud. Maybe as I won't, won't get to skip around as much right now, but I'm going to stay. So that's the first activity. The second activity, I think, of Abraham there's another story in the Old Testament where Abraham, um, God basically came to him. Now, Abraham was called the friend of God, and he's the father of faith. This is a big deal, really big deal. And so God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to deepen our relationship. I want to tighten things up between us. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want to cut covenant. So I want you to go and take this big cow, and I want you to cut the cow in half. And I want you to put half on this side, half on this side. And, and, then, and then what I want you to do is I want to meet with you in the middle of that. And basically this whole thing is to show you how deadly serious I am about this. And I want to meet you halfway and we're going to cut covenant. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to unite in this way. And I'm going to declare to you what I'm going to do and, and what I want you to do. And we're going to, we're going to come together on this. And so Abraham is like, okay. So he cuts a cow in half. Don't picture that. And then he puts the rear end part and the front end part on either sides. Don't picture that either. And then, and then the Bible says that, you know, there's a few more details here, but, but basically Abraham is there and he's waiting for God to show up and God doesn't show up. He's waiting for God to show up. God doesn't show up. And he's waiting for God to show up and God doesn't show up. And then all of a sudden something does show up. Birds. Buzzards. Ravens. I don't know, I'm trying to think of all the evil birds. Hummingbirds, no, <laughs> probably not hummingbirds. No, no, don't, what are you talking about hummingbirds? Um, birds start showing up, and then he's, he's just, then you just have him, and he's just trying to shoo these birds away. He's like, get out of here, birds, get out of here, and he's just, and God's not showing up, but these birds are showing up, and he's chasing these birds away, he's chasing these birds away, he's yelling at the birds, he's throwing rocks at the birds, he's kicking at the birds, he's throwing his beard at the birds. I just picture him with a long beard, he's like, whoosh, or whatever. But he's doing all this, he's just, and he's just doing that until finally it says that he fell asleep. 
And then he wakes up. And when he looks at the cow that was there, it, it's, the cow is charred all the way through. And what we're supposed to kind of glean from this is basically that God was, was telling Abraham, look, I'm going to make a covenant with you, but I know you're not going to be able to do your part, so I'm going to do the whole thing. And, he, and it was charred all the way through. God had been there. God's presence was there, even though Abraham wasn't aware of it. And God did the whole thing. And so what was Abraham's job? Abraham's job was to chase away the birds. And what are the birds? They're the doubts. They're the fears. They're the lies of the enemy coming to tell you, God doesn't really love you. You remember what you did? You can't be right with God anymore. No, God loves that person. He doesn't love you. You've seen the way God treats that person? You see the way he treats you? This will never end. You think that God's just around the corner? No, no, no. He's never coming. It's too late for you. You got to chase those birds away. You got to shoo them. You got to kick them. You got to beard slap them. That's the activity of trust. And then what else did Abraham do? He went to sleep, stillness. He got to the end of himself and he said, God, I got nothing left. And God said, perfect, I was waiting for this. The activity of trust is a lot of stillness. It's staying in that place. And it's a lot of chasing away the birds. And what do you see in the book of Job? You have Job who basically never stops pursuing Jesus or, or God. He never stops pursuing God. He never stops coming to God and questioning God. He stays in the ring with God. Like Jacob, he says, I'm not letting you go. Even if you kill me, I'm not letting go. Though you slay me, I will trust you. I have nowhere else to go. And he holds on with everything he had to his relationship with this God. And he chases away the doubts. The friends come and they start, even these half-truths, they sounded like truths, but they were missing something. And he just keeps batting them away. <laughs> chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. I got to go 38 times or we're good, you know. And he just keeps chasing these things away. No, 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 no. I know that's what you think. That's what I used to think. But I know something else is going on. I don't understand it, but I know it's not that. I know it's not that. I'm not settling for anything shallow anything less than the real truth. That's the activity of trust. And that's what the book of Job is trying to teach us to do. Can we pray? Can we take a little time to listen for the Holy Spirit, see what he might say? If he wants to highlight something I said or maybe say something better. Lord Jesus, we really thank you for the book of Job and how it helps us get deep. And I thank you that you don't want a surfacey, shallow, kind of genie in the lamp relationship with us. But you want us to know you in the fellowship of your suffering so that we can know you in the full power of your resurrection. You want us to know that even if we go into the depths of hell, you are with us.
We want, you really want us to see your full commitment to us. And I pray you'd help us to see it. And ultimately, Lord, you would help us to trust. Help us to trust today. Help us to trust with whatever pain we're experiencing right now. Help us to trust you in this season. When we wake up tomorrow, Lord, I pray you'd really help us to trust you again. Thank you, Lord.